Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, the Christian life consists of wayfaring and warfaring. Christians are wayfarers. We are on a, a journey, a, a pilgrimage to the celestial city, to, to, uh, the, the, to heaven, to the promised land, to the new heavens and the new earth. And while we journey through this life, we're at war. There's a spiritual battle that is raging. We have enemies, spiritual enemies, and we have physical enemies. Certainly you have noticed an increasing anti-Christian bias in our culture. An article in Christianity Today uh, from October 10th, 2017, entitled Study, Anti-Christian Bias Hasn't Grown, It's Just Gotten Richer, reported on a study uh, conducted by sociologist George Yancey, who analyzed 30-plus years of data to track approval ratings for evangelical and fundamental, fundamentalist Christians. His big takeaway? What has changed is not the number of Americans who dislike conservative Christians, but which Americans? According to the American National Election Studies questionnaires, the people who rated evangelical and fundamentalist Christians most negatively over the decades have consistently and unsurprisingly been politically liberal, highly educated, and less religious. But in recent years, particularly 2012 and 2016, they've shifted to becoming richer. This trend means the, the people pushing back against conservative Christians now have bigger budgets to bankroll their viewpoint. Money means power. So there's more explicit hostility towards Christians in some sectors of power. This should come as no surprise to us. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, we can be thankful that in America we do not face real physical persecution. We're not generally being oppressed or harassed or pursued or killed, even like some of our brothers and sisters in other countries. 
But we do endure a relatively mild level of hostility from the culture at large. Following Jesus might get you excluded, slighted, ridiculed here and abroad, but in some places it will get you physical abuse and even martyrdom. When Jesus began his public ministry and started to attract crowds with his preaching and healing, he also attracted enemies, powerful enemies within the religious establishment who correctly understood that Jesus threatened their authority and influence. These enemies, particularly the Pharisees, sought to undermine, trap, challenge, and ultimately kill Jesus to preserve their place of authority. Luke has been showing us this since chapter 11, verse 14, where the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus bluntly pronounces woes on the Pharisees and the so-called experts in the law while eating dinner at, with, with some Pharisees. He is blunt because they are in deep spiritual danger. Yet, the last couple of verses in chapter 11 indicate that the Pharisees doubled down on their hypocrisy and their opposition to Jesus. They sought to trip him up in his teaching. Isn't that kind of foolhardy? They're trying to get God to make a mistake. It really is futile. Well, chapter 12 begins with a warning from Jesus, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And that sets the context for the verses I'm addressing today. Not only is their hypocrisy, their teaching, and their example spiritually dangerous, leading people astray, these opponents also were a danger to the physical lives of Jesus and his followers. In fact, the Pharisees will soon be plotting how they can destroy Jesus, how they can put him to death. Well, in the verses before us today, Jesus addresses his disciples in light of this opposition that they're, that they're facing. And he gives some guiding principles we should live by as we travel this life through enemy territory. Think of these points this morning as equipment you need for the journey. You're behind enemy lines and you need to know how to get through. These points are the compass you need to navigate and guide you through your life as a follower of Christ. Well, the three principles that will set and keep you on course are fear God the Father, second, acknowledge God the Son, and third, rely upon God the Holy Spirit. First, we need to fear God the Father. Jesus knew that the disciples would face persecution and martyrdom. Tradition says that they all died uh, martyrs' deaths except John. The temptation would be for them to fear those who have the ability to put them to death. Well, that's a natural human response. Who wouldn't feel that way? But Jesus says, as his followers, we need to be more concerned about our souls than our bodies. Our souls are eternal. Our bodies in their current state are not. 
And that's the point of the parable of the rich fool we looked at last week. He had plenty of provisions for this life, but he had made no provision for his soul, for eternity. Your soul is your being. It's, it's who you are. And God has authority over your soul, it says here. You and, and everyone else will have to give an account before God. We will all stand before the judgment seat. He is the judge before whom we will all appear. And as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, we're all sinners, and, and the thought of appearing before God should terrify us. That, that is a legitimate fear we should have. And, and we're inclined to run away. We want to be away from the, from the gaze of God. But you cannot escape from God. You can run, but you cannot hide. It would be wiser, instead of running from God, denying God, it would be wiser to seek His favor. And God has made a way for us to gain His favor through the sacrifice Christ made for sinners, such as we are. So in and through Christ, we have access to God. We are adopted into His family we know, yeah, He's a just God, but in Christ we experiencing Him as a loving Heavenly Father. If you only know God's justice, you will live in terror before God and you will seek to hide from Him. I visited uh, some uh, sites for, from atheists, websites, blogs from atheists, and they're promoting arguments against the existence of God, and I found them unconvincing, and it seemed to me that they were simply trying to rid themselves of God so that they would, would be able to live lives unaccountable, that they wouldn't have to answer to a God. And I suspect that's what many people do. They, they don't want to, to have a God out there. If there's no God, then they won't have to to appear before Him, they won't have to answer to Him. But we will all appear before the judgment seat. If you only know Him as a, a judge, you, you, you want to hide from Him. We want to run away because we know we're guilty. But if you know Him as a judge and a father, if the judge is also your father, you will live in awe, reverence, devotion, trust, and worship. And you will seek Him and draw near to Him and submit to Him. The Bible says in multiple places that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we want to live a life of wisdom, to live wisely in all things as we are on this pilgrimage, then this is the starting place, the fear of God. Get a healthy fear of the Lord, not the terror of facing the judge but the reverence and devotion that comes with knowing His great love. Jesus assures us here that the Father knows us. He even knows the number of hairs upon our heads. And He values us. He knows when every sparrow on planet Earth falls to the ground. And we're more valuable than sparrows. We're more valuable to Him 
than you can ever imagine if you know him as your heavenly father. So that, that could cause us to, to not be cowering in terror before the Lord, but to, to have that reverence, that awe, that respect that you have for a, a wonderful, loving father. Well, having that kind of fear of the Lord is what allows you to live anxiety-free. That's what Jesus is saying here. God will take care of you. God will take care of his own. We need not fear what man can do to us. Yes, they may even kill us. But nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. So don't fear man. Cultivate a healthy respect and awe and reverence for the Lord and live before him that way. The problem is that we often pay more attention to the opinions of others than we do to the opinion of God. Do other people's opinions control you? Or are you controlled by God's opinion of you? Are, are, are you living in light of the fact that God does know you? He values you so much that he sent his son to die for you. It makes a huge difference as you wayfare and warfare. J.I. Packer comments on this. He says, God is love is the complete truth about God so far as the Christian is concerned. Every single thing that happens to him or her expresses God's love to him or her. God is love to him. Holy, omnipotent love. At every moment, in every event of every day's life, even when he cannot see the why and the wherefore of God's dealings, he knows that there is love in and behind them, and so he can rejoice always, even when, humanly speaking, things are going wrong. He knows what the true story of his life, when known, will prove to be, as the hymn says, mercy from first to last. And he is content. This kind of understanding of God's love is necessary for living a healthy Christian life. Any lesser understanding leaves us impoverished, weak, and in less than the best state of affairs. Do you know God's love for you? And do you have a fear of the Lord? Is that guiding you through life, that you live before his gaze, his face, and have his favor. That makes a difference as you travel this life. Well, the second, the second principle that will carry us through this journey of, of life and following Christ is that we should acknowledge God the Son. This second guiding principle goes along with the first because... We cannot experience the fear of God that springs from our experience of the love of the Father unless we acknowledge the Son. The word acknowledge means to confess allegiance to something or someone. We must be aligned with Jesus Christ because he is the only mediator between God and man. See, Jesus knew that his disciples would be facing persecution and that they would be tempted to fear those who could kill them. This persecution would come because of their allegiance to Christ. Indeed, in the early days of the church, the Romans persecuted the Christians by threatening their lives if they would not say that Caesar is Lord. They tried to force the Christians 
to deny that Jesus is Lord. Well, we're called to acknowledge Christ, to speak up for Christ, to bear witness, to not be afraid or ashamed. And we are called to live in a manner consistent with that confession. Our confession and our lives should say, I am with Christ. I follow Him. He is my Lord and my Savior. And there's a wonderful promise that goes with this. If we acknowledge Christ before men, He will acknowledge us before the angels of God. He will say to everyone, She is with me. He is with me. My uncle who is probably watching today. Uh, He was the Secretary of the United States Senate. And he took Sarah and I on a tour of the Senate building. And being with him in his position of authority, we got to see some things that you don't see on the normal tour. We had some extra privileges and access because we were with him. We went to places and he said, they're with me. And we were allowed in. And we could say, we're with him. I want the eternal Son of God, the the King of kings and the Lord of lords to say before the angels, he is with me. Then I will be allowed in because I'm with him. This should be a guiding principle for us as we journey through this hostile land. As we go, we will always show and speak our allegiance to the one who laid down his life for us, that we might live. He died for us. We should live for him unashamedly. Martin Luther, in his famous hymn, wrote, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. When you side with Christ, you are siding with the ultimate winner. Do people around you know that you are a follower of Christ? Do they hear you talk about it? Do they see it in your life? Acknowledge God the Son. Well, thirdly, this third guiding principle that Jesus gives us here is to rely upon God, the Holy Spirit. It begins in chapter 10, speaking of the, uh, verse 10, speaking of the Holy Spirit. It says, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This verse has caused a, a lot of confusion and consternation in many people throughout, throughout history. Well, as Jesus is addressing his disciples, he has in mind the Pharisees. We need to understand this. These Pharisees, his chief opponents. This discourse began when those Pharisees, back in chapter 11, verse 14, accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Well, Jesus goes on to state that he does it by the finger of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Verse 20 of chapter 11. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew's account in his gospel uses the term spirit of God instead of finger of God. 
There's no discrepancy there that's not inconsistent because they are synonyms. So what the Pharisees were doing was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They saw the power of God on display in Christ. They saw the miracles. They heard the teaching. Yet they willfully and deliberately ascribed the work to the devil. They called the work of God, the power and grace of God, evil. Their hearts had been so hardened that they opposed the work of the Holy Spirit. William Hendrickson in his commentary says this, Now to be forgiven implies that the sinner be truly penitent. Among the opponents, the Pharisees, such genuine sorrow for sin was totally lacking. For penitence they substituted hardening, for confession plotting. Thus by means of their own criminal and completely inexcusable callousness they were dooming themselves. Their sin was unpardonable because they were unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a mur murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the promptings of the Spirit, not even to listen to his pleading and warning voice, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. He has sinned the sin unto death. Now, maybe you, like me, at one point in your life, was worried that you had committed the unforgivable sin. Well, if you're worried about it, then you most certainly have not committed the unpardonable sin. People who have committed this sin are so hardened and callous to the work of the Spirit that they're not even worried about it. In fact, they're probably glad about it. But on the flip side, as we think about how this applies to us on our journey, as we face the opposition in this hostile world in which we live, we are, not to blaspheme the Spirit, obviously, we are to rely upon the Spirit. Look at verse 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's amazing that the Lord would give them supernaturally the words to say, to testify to Christ, to acknowledge Christ. Well, the New Testament has many commands, direct commands to us to Live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, be filled or controlled by the Spirit. And conversely, it tells us to, to not grieve the Spirit, resist the Spirit, or quench the Spirit. And certainly, don't blaspheme the Spirit. Well, how do we put that into practice in our lives? I think we need an understanding of who the Spirit is. We have been talking a little, or we confessed earlier uh, about the Trinity. Uh, God is one God in three persons. And we read about their personal properties. We need to understand something of the Trinity. Well, God is one God in three persons. Now, we need to not 
err on either side. Uh, sometimes we, when we think of this, we, we think of three different gods. That's tritheism. That's not what we believe. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're not three different gods. They're one God. And we need to uh, not err on the other side the most common being to think that, yes, there's one God who appears in three different modes, that, that sometimes he's God the Father, sometimes he's God the Son, and sometimes he's God the Spirit, or even that throughout history he has been those three things at different times. No, that's, that's wrong. That's an old heresy called modalism. It's, it's somewhat common today in certain groups. Now what we believe is, is that there's one God that is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Within the Godhead, there is a family relationship, a Father, a Son, and the Spirit. And these properties of each one, uh, the, the, the Father be, uh, begets the Son, the Son is begotten of the Father. That doesn't mean he was created. But that means that for eternity, always God has had this father-son element to it where it's eternally begetting and eternally begotten. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful love relationship within the Godhead. And the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is from all eternity we confessed. So... Within this dynamic of the love relationship within the Godhead, it spills out. This love moves out, proceeds out into creation. It, it creates, in the beginning, God created through his word, who was God, and the Spirit was there hovering over the waters. All three were present there. They, they, have, they are love, and they are reaching out and and expanding and looking to pour out that love and create. Well, within that, the Holy Spirit proceeds. He is the executor of the will of God. If you write a will, there's always an executor. The, the will has uh, your will on it. You, this is what you want, how you want your property uh, to be distributed amongst your heirs. And there's an executor, a person who is tasked and named legally to carry out the will, to carry out and make sure that everything that you desire to happen to your heirs is, is, indeed, is indeed carried out and they get what they have coming to them. Well, the Holy Spirit is the executor of the will of God. He carries it out in our lives. He is the, the grace and the power of God proceeding to us from the Father and the Son. That's God active in our lives and in creation. So that takes you back to the Pharisees. They were resisting that. They were quenching that. They were grieving that. They were opposing it. And that can't be forgiven because they were hardened to it. So, as we think about this, God's work in our lives, His grace and power in our lives, we need to put ourselves in a position, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to be filled or controlled by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to open ourselves up to the will of God. 
the Scriptures. God's will for us written down. The Spirit always is trying to apply this, what we have here, into our lives. He sanctifies us, makes us more holy, makes us what God would have us to be. So don't resist the Holy Spirit. Encourage the Spirit's work in your life. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Pray that the Spirit would empower you and guide and direct you in your life. Cooperate with Him in your life. And if we do that, we will be empowered and provided for throughout our pilgrimage, even when we face difficult circumstances, even when we face enemies. He will supply all that we need to be faithful to the Lord. Well, in conclusion, I would just remind you, how can we put these things into practice in our lives, these three principles well, I would say, first of all, take time to regularly remind yourself of your relationship to the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you think of God, don't think of just the Father or just the Son or just the Holy Spirit, but think of all three. Because they're all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God for eternity. And, and that's where they are today. Be more concerned, first of all, about God's opinion of you than other people's opinion. You want people to think well of you, but, but only because you are doing it out of love for them, out of love for God. So have a, have a Godward orientation to your life, first of all, not a people orientation. Not, don't let that be the primary orientation of your life. Live your life before God, quorum Deo, before the face of God, understanding that He's always looking at you. He's always gazing upon you. He's intimately acquainted with everything that you do and think, even the intentions of your heart. He knows it all, and he loves you. We need to be convinced of that and live out of that. So fear God. Cultivate in awe and reverence for your loving Heavenly Father who is love and justice. And think maybe at some point in the day when you have your quiet time, as you cultivate this, remind yourself of the love of God and, and you, you cultivate a fear of the Father, acknowledge the Son. Think about how, how can I acknowledge uh, Christ in my life, in all areas of my life, and at all times, even when no one is looking. And then thirdly, rely upon the Spirit. Rely upon the Holy Spirit to do the work of God in your life. Don't resist it or quench it. And don't grieve the Spirit. And if we do these things, this will be a compass for us to keep us on track as we engage in this journey, wayfaring and warfaring for the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word that is profitable for all that we need to become children of God, to to walk in your ways and to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, we do pray that you would equip us and strengthen us for the fight and for the journey and carry us all the way safely to our ultimate destination to be with you. Thank you for your great love and care and concern for us. And Lord, we pray for those who don't know this, that you would open their, their eyes and their hearts and their minds to the good news about Jesus, how through him we can have this relationship with you. 
Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.